And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usfury, and I'm happy to welcome Richard Zoglin to the program today. Richard has worn many hats at Time Magazine over the years, writer, critic, and editor. He's also written three books looking at the history of American entertainment. Comedy at the Edge, How Stand-Up in the 1970s Changed America. Hope, Entertainer of the Century, about comedian Bob Hope. And now we'll be talking about Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show, which is published by Simon & Schuster. Richard, Elvis Presley's big return to live performance in 1969 in Las Vegas was not the first time he performed in the city. What was his experience back in 1956? Right. He was just coming up in 1956, his big breakthrough year. He had one hit at that point, Heartbreak Hotel. He hadn't even appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show yet. But the colonel, Colonel Parker, booked him into the New Frontier in Las Vegas on a bill with Freddie Martin's orchestra and Shecky Green. It was pretty odd in 1956 for the Las Vegas crowd, that nightclub crowd, middle-aged mostly. And this, you know, hip-shaking kid from Memphis, they didn't know what to make of him. So he did not get particularly good reviews. It was not considered a success. But Elvis, you know, it was an important engagement for him for a couple of reasons. One, he used to go see lounge singers while he was, you know, in between his shows. And he saw a group called Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys who were doing a kind of rocking version of Big Mama Thornton's song, Hound Dog. Well, that's where he discovered Hound Dog. He put it into his act, recorded it a couple months later, and it obviously was one of his signature hits. So he used their kind arrangement of, for it? Yes. If you kind of listen to some of his early live recordings of it before he actually recorded it, it sounds a little bit more like Freddie Bell and the Bow Boys. He adapted it gradually to, to his own. But they did a sort of rock and roll. It was kind of lounge show rock and roll. And Elvis just made it a little raw and more interesting. The other thing in Las Vegas, he met Liberace, who is not a performer you usually associate with Elvis Presley. But Liberace was a big star in Vegas, and Elvis was kind of having problems. So the colonel went over to see Liberace at the Riviera Hotel and said, you know, could you help out my boy a little, come by and see his show, take some publicity shots with him. And Liberace did that. He was... He was a very generous performer, and he gave Elvis one piece of advice. He said, I think your show needs more glitz. Elvis was actually influenced by Liberace. I think he really appreciated his showmanship, and sure enough, a few months later, he was wearing a gold lame, on tour, he was wearing a gold lame jacket, very much like the one Liberace was wearing in Vegas. And he and Liberace were friendly throughout their lives, and Liberace was a big help, I think, to Elvis at the beginning, and Elvis appreciated it. He always felt grateful that, that Liberace went out of his way to help a young kid. But it would be another 13 years before Elvis hit the stage again in Las Vegas. Yes, and of course, a lot happened in between. <laughs> you know, Elvis didn't do well in Las Vegas at first stint, but he loved Vegas. He really took to the city. He came back. Often would go there after movie shoots with his Memphis pals. He would see shows, date showgirls. In 63, of course, he filmed Viva Las Vegas there. In 67, he married Priscilla there at the Aladdin Hotel. So he wasn't performing at all live during the 1960s. And when it was finally, finally time to bring him back to the stage, Vegas was the place to do it. He felt comfortable there. Now, the name of the book is Elvis in Vegas, but it could very well be Elvis and Vegas because yes. Vegas is an equal star to Elvis yes. in this book. I, I have to say I kind of began because with the book because I wanted to do a book about Vegas' golden age of entertainment, sort of the heyday years of the 60s from the Rat Pack to Elvis, perfectly bracketing the 60s. 
which I do think were the high point of Vegas's reign as, as the entertainment capital in America. But when I saw how, what a connection Elvis had with Vegas, I just thought it made a good framework for the book. And I could tell two stories at the same time, what was happening to Vegas in the 60s and what was happening to Elvis in the 60s, an interesting dual trajectory. <laughs> and perfect timing for the 50th anniversary of Of course. I always had that in mind. I knew that the 50th anniversary show was coming up. That actually kept me going on the book, made me uh, keep to a pace because I knew I wanted to bring it out this summer, which we did. Well, let's give equal billing to the co-star of Vegas. And how did gambling first and then showbiz come to Vegas, that sleepy little town yeah, in southern well, Nevada? Yeah, well, a quick history of Vegas. Its sort of key moment was the year was 1931 when Nevada legalized gambling, the only state in the union to have legalized gambling. And they began construction on Hoover Dam, which was the huge public works project that brought thousands of workers to the Vegas area. And what did they do on Saturday night to spend their money? They went to downtown Vegas to the casinos and the houses of prostitution. But it wasn't until 1941 the first hotel opened on the Strip, what we know as the Strip, the, the highway leading from Las Vegas to L.A. It was the El Rancho Vegas followed by the last Frontier Hotel. And then in '46, the Flamingo, which was built by Bugsy Siegel and his mob friends from New York. The El Rancho Vegas has started to bring in stars, well-known entertainers to, to help draw people to the casinos. But the Flamingo really got the big stars. It really brought Vegas into the big leagues. Jimmy Durante was the opening night entertainer. Martin and Lewis played there, Lena Horne, all the big stars. And that really launched the 50s building boom in Las Vegas. All the classic hotels on the Strip were built, the Desert Inn, the Sands, the Sahara, the Riviera, and they started drawing all the top nightclub performers in America. And so it was the 50s that really established Vegas as the nightclub capital of America. But I think the real juice for Vegas happened in early 1960 when Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack show happened. Frank Sinatra was already a big star in Vegas from the early 50s. And in early 1960, he was coming to Las Vegas to shoot Ocean's Eleven the film with a lot of his, you know, friends from Hollywood he cast in it. And he was going to appear at the Sands Hotel at night while he was shooting during the day. And either he or, or Jack and Trotter, who was the impresario at the Sands, one of them came up with the idea that maybe he would bring on some of his co-stars on stage with him at night at the Sands. And sure enough, they did every night. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop. Made Peter Lawford, what an amazing entertainer. <laughs> yeah, well, Peter Lawford had a very important connection, of course. He was brother-in-law to Jack Kennedy, who was running for president at the time. In fact, Jack Kennedy was one of the people who came to see that show, sitting in the audience at the Sands showroom, and Frank Sinatra introduced him from the stage. There's some blurry video of it in existence. So it was the hottest show, that Rat Pack show, ran for four weeks, just a kind of free-for-all of songs and jokes and drinking and ad-lib antics. You know, it was the hottest show in Vegas. Sold out every performance. Celebrities came to see it. And it was the show that really, it established the Rat Pack as the kind of coolest entertainers in America and really sort of supercharged Vegas as a center for pretty much every nightclub performer in America. And Jerry Lewis is a little upset that Dean Martin was doing their act without him, essentially. Yeah, you know, that was something I kind of discovered. I, I did an interview with Jerry just before he died. I'm sure it was the last interview he did. I had interviewed him a couple of times before. 
very difficult to interview <laughs> a guy. But he told me he um, he didn't like the Rat Pack sort of show. It was, uh, was very much, he thought, like the old Martin and Lewis routines, cutting up. He sarcastically mentioned to Dean, even though they had already broken up their act, but he told me that he called up Dean. He says, would you like me to come over and help out? You're just doing our act. Uh, <laughs> Dean sort of fended him off. I detected a little bitterness there in Jerry at the end of his life. So you've written about comedy a lot in its place in America with stand-up and how it changed America and then about Bob Hope being the entertainer mm-hmm. of the century. What drew you to comedy as a field you wanted to investigate further? I'd been writing about TV for a long time, and I felt like comedy per se, back when I started in the 80s and 90s, I don't think people kind of thought of comedy as a separate genre. You know, if a comedian was on TV, he'd get a review. If he was on stage in, in theater, he'd get a review. But people were not paying that much attention to stand-up, per se. And I felt there was this great generation of comedians that really changed comedy, and they began after Lenny Bruce died. And it was George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Steve Martin, Albert Brooks... Robin Williams, Andy Kaufman, and down to Jerry Seinfeld. And that, that was kind of the bracket, the, the group that I highlighted in the book Comedy at the Edge, how stand-up in the 1970s changed America. It was the era of the comedy clubs when comedy clubs became big. The boom. And those guys really were adventurous in different ways, pushed stand-up comedy into new areas. So it was just an area I thought needed some, you know, historical chronicling. And I always, just from a kid, I always just loved comedy. I used to have comedy albums when I was young. I'd listen to the Smothers Brothers or Bill Cosby, early records. And then when Carlin and Robert Klein, another comedian I talk about, came along, I was just infatuated with their stuff. I loved them. And I just felt that there was a generational line. You could sort of trace one to the next and how they influenced each other and how stand-up comedy developed as an art form. And so that's what drew me to that subject. What are the challenges in covering something like stand-up comedy sets and these Las Vegas shows in which they were ephemeral? They weren't meant to be memorialized for posterity. Yeah, well, you're right. The comedians who played Las Vegas, now that was a different group. George Carlin and Richard Pryor did try to play Vegas early in their career. They were not Vegas stars. The people who did well in Vegas were kind of loud, in-your-face comedians. Buddy Hackett, Don Rickles, Shecky Green. Those were the three classic Vegas comedians. I've always heard Shecky as kind of an insult for an old-fashioned comedian, but it seemed Shecky Green was a force of nature on stage. Yeah, absolutely. He was great. Now, the problem is, as you point out, you can see almost none of their stuff on the Vegas stage. I heard so much about Shecky Green. He did a wild act, a lot of improvisation, a lot of he would do impressions, he would sing, interplay with the audience, and everybody who saw him said he was he was just great. But you can't see any of those shows. They never they never filmed or taped those shows. You can see him on TV and a few guest appearances, but very in a kind of straitjacket for Shecky Green. So that's a shame. We sort of know better what Don Rickles did because he was on TV so much. And there is one Live from Vegas album that Don Rickles did. But Buddy Hackett's another one that back in the 60s, the late 60s, was known as the dirtiest comedian in in Vegas. He used four-letter words and, and some raw sex you know, language that was considered startling back then. 
that stuff isn't recorded either. So they're, they're tough to hear. Whereas the stand-up comedians who were doing records, we hear their records so we get a good idea. And they started to make concert films too. But the Vegas comedians are difficult to hear. And then there was, in addition to those three, there were all sorts of stand-ups who, did, who were opening acts and sometimes headliners themselves, Jack Carter and Jackie Kahane and, you know, just lots of lesser known today. But I think sometimes good comedians and there was a style in Las Vegas and they, they adapted to it well. You said that Buddy Hackett could get away with it because he played kind of a, a sweet version of it as opposed to Lenny Bruce before he died. He was so angry. It's funny. Buddy Hackett and, and Lenny Bruce were good friends. And Lenny Bruce was one of the very few comedians of any note who never played Las Vegas. He was too raw for Las Vegas. But Buddy had a way of – he had that kind of squeaky voice and kind of pudgy little boy manner that let him get away with a lot of stuff. He would make some dirty jokes and then he would apologize for them and, and he was cute. And so somehow he, he could get away with it. And, you know, I read the reviews of those shows and the, even the son of straight-laced variety critics were very indulgent of Buddy. As you said, when Sinatra came to Vegas in 1960, it was a, a big deal. And you named some of the other performers that had been there before, like Sophie Tucker and Jimmy Wakely. And these are people I've heard of, but not really familiar with their yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not too familiar either. You're going back to the 40s, but probably the first really big star that Vegas had on stage in the 40s was Sophie Tucker. She, Before that, they had nightclub performers who were known in the nightclub world. But Sophie Tucker was a, you know, a worldwide famous music hall star from Britain and did movies, did radio, and was very well known. And when she came to Vegas in, I believe it was 44, at the El Rancho, the hoopla was amazing. You know, they, they gave her a parade from a train station. So that was a milestone for Vegas. That was the first really sort of major star. And then after that, you know, the hotels realized that, you know, that's the way to get people into their casinos was to have named stars. And because they would have to pay a lot for these stars, but this was the business model. We'll take a loss on the entertainment and make it up at the casino. So as the 50s went on, Vegas was able to pay more money for their entertainers than anybody in the country because, you know, they made the money back on the gambling. So it was a great uh, business model. And while the title of your book talks about how Elvis changed the Las Vegas show, Vegas had already been an entity that knew how to reinvent itself because originally it was built on kind of that Old West aesthetic. And then when Bugsy Siegel and the Flamingo come in, they uh, start operating under a new, more modern aesthetic. Yeah. The architecture changed. It became this kind of Miami Beach kind of resort style, desert sort of style, the sands and the Sahara. It was resort living. The early hotels, El Rancho Vegas and The Last Frontier, were Old West and kind of rustic. They played up the Old West quality. And Vegas in those days was still like a frontier town. Mel Torme, who was one of the singers who played there in the 40s, said he wouldn't have been a surprise to see somebody walking down with six guns (laughs) down the street like a tombstone or something. But it changed. In the 50s, it became upscale resort, Sunbelt resort style. And that, you know, it spruced it up. And now it was really first-class resort city 
And then the really big entertainers all came, and all sorts of entertainers, strange people. You know, Marlena Dietrich did a Las Vegas show. Ronald Reagan, when his movie career was fading, did a Las Vegas show in no, the mid-50s. Was it Noel Coward? Or? And Noel Coward, yes. That was probably the strangest of all. Sophisticated Brit who actually, you know, did very well and enjoyed Vegas. And I think it was 55. Well, so. almost every performer's favorite color is green. Yes, he had, he admitted it. So it was quite a time. And, of course, all the singers, Nat King Cole and, and Judy Garland, and they, they were all doing Vegas in the 50s and early 60s. And you write about one man who is key to getting all these big-name stars coming into town, Jack Entrotter was yeah. his name. Seemed like a very fascinating guy. Yeah. There was a name that was big, big, big back in the 50s and 60s and is almost forgotten today. But he was the impresario at the Sands Hotel. The Sands was built, it opened at the end of 52, and it was built by the same folks who had the Copacabana in New York. And it was a mob-run operation. Frank Costello in New York was kind of the head of that. And they brought out Jack Entrotter, who had been the manager of the Copacabana in New York, to Las Vegas to run the Sands Hotel. Well, the Copa in New York was probably the premier nightclub in America and had all the big stars, Sinatra, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, Nat King Cole. And Entrotter had relationships with all those people. So he brought them out to Las Vegas, and he made the sands. They had the biggest stars. It was Sinatra and Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin and Nat King Cole and Lena Horne and, and just a whole bunch. That was sort of the elite of the strip. And Entrotter was a larger-than-life guy who was friends with Sinatra and all these people and a very imposing and powerful figure in Las Vegas. And he helped make Vegas as big as it was in the 50s. Now, of course, we have to talk about the mafia, their involvement in Las Vegas. How did they get out there? And then how much sway did they have over the, the entertainment part of proceedings? Well, nightclubs in America at the time were pretty much mostly run by the mob. It was just a good business for them, and they enjoyed entertainers. They liked being part of that world, and so it was just natural for them to sort of move to Las Vegas. You know, the story is that Bugsy Siegel was in L.A., the East Coast mob's representative in L.A., and he went to Las Vegas, this is in the mid-40s, and said, hey, we could open a really fine resort hotel here, and Meyer Lansky was the head of that branch of the mafia. He agreed, and they built the Flamingo Hotel. And it just seemed to be that virtually every hotel had mob connections in one way or another. Some were the Cleveland mob, some were the New York mob, the Chicago, and they, they were all kind of operations that had links to organized crime. They could launder money because the gambling money, you know, it was all cash, obviously. It came in and it went into a central counting room where they counted it up and they could easily skim off money. They didn't have to report that money. And there was so much money flowing in that it was just easy to skim money off and, and make money that way. So it was a, a good money-making operation for the mob. But they did love the entertainment and they treated the entertainers well. All the entertainers, interestingly enough, kind of loved the mob era. They liked being treated so well. They were treated like royalty. They also claimed that when the mob ran Las Vegas, it was a safe town. They may have been doing nefarious things other places, but they kept Las Vegas clean and safe. And the entertainers <laughs> appreciated that. And then near the end of the 60s, as 
the entertainment scene in America is changing, going to more of a rock and roll aesthetic, less glitzy and glamorous, more earthy and plain spoken, corporate America comes into Las Vegas. Yeah. In 67, Howard Hughes arrives in Las Vegas. Hughes had had a long kind of relationship with Vegas. He would go there a lot. But when he sold TWA Airlines and had a whole lot of money, he decided that he would start buying up hotels in Las Vegas, which he did, starting with the Desert Inn and and bought several more hotels. And suddenly he owned like a third of the hotels on the Strip. And he brought a new kind of mentality to corporate mentality. He was tight with his money. He wanted the, the places to run on a a more disciplined business model. So it used to be that, you know, they would spend through the moon on entertainment and make it all up in the casino. Well, Howard Hughes decided that every element of the hotel had to pay for itself. The restaurant had to pay for itself. The hotel had to pay for itself. And the entertainment had to pay for itself. So that suddenly there was more strictures placed on salaries, a tighter grip on spending in the hotels. So it's sort of was not quite the freewheeling place that it was earlier in the 60s. That was Hughes in around 68. But at the same time, as you mentioned, the whole culture was changing and, you know, the rock and roll revolution and the Beatles and everything. And suddenly, you know, Vegas was not looking so cool anymore. And the younger generation was not coming to Las Vegas. The rock groups were not playing Las Vegas. So, you know, the combination of Hughes and this new sort of corporate mentality and the changing culture and music scene, Vegas was starting to wonder where, where it was going. Before we hit Vegas's shift into yeah. a, a new era, let's look back at a lounge act that had no equal, Louis Prima and Keeley Smith. Yeah. Well, I really loved going back into Vegas history and seeing who were the big acts, the big influential acts. And by the way, what I was surprised when I launched into this book and the reason I wanted to do it was no one had written a good entertainment history of Las Vegas. There have been books about Las Vegas that focused on the hotels and the gambling and the mob, uh, but none that focused on you know what went on on stage. And I think this is modestly to say the best sort of history uh, of how the Vegas show developed, evolved. And one of the things was in the mid-50s was the invention of the lounge show. The lounges were kind of bar areas adjacent to the casino. And at the beginning, in the early 50s, it was just a place where music group would play. It was just kind of accompaniment for the gambling till somebody came up with the idea of putting real entertainment in there, singers. And that was a way of keeping people in the casino after the main showroom show was over, they would stay and they would go to the lounge show. Well, the biggest lounge act in the 50s, beginning in 54, was Louis Prima and Keeley Smith. Louis Prima had been a big band leader. Keeley Smith was a singer that he met, a younger girl from Virginia, I believe, and made her his singer, and then they married. But their act was not doing so well because the big band era was kind of over and they weren't kind of adapting. And they came to Las Vegas and were put in the Sahara Lounge, and they developed an act that was just the hottest lounge act in Vegas. Louis Prima, you know, was a trumpeter who was really high energy singer and, you know, band leader. And the act, and Keeley Smith was very <laughs> kind of impassive, would sit there quietly while all this activity was going on. And then she would sing, and she had this great voice. They had an amazing interplay, husband and wife, and they kind of teased each other. Uh, and he taunted her, and she kind of had a deadpan reaction. It was just a wonderful act. Musically, it was great, and you can hear them on records, and they had some live from Las Vegas records. 
their lounge show was for five or six years just a, a show you couldn't get into. It was the greatest show and the biggest lounge show in Vegas history. And so they were the kind of the model for an, a Vegas lounge act. And lounge shows, you know, continued to be a big thing in Vegas through the 60s. And they were pretty much the blueprint for Sonny and Cher later on. Yeah. Part of the what made them so appealing was this interplay between he was this kind of raucous, high-energy guy, and she was very deadpan. And Sonny and Cher seemed to imitate that. They they came to Vegas after their early success in the early 60s. Then they had a period of not doing so well when they their kind of early top 40 hits were, were over. In around 67, 68, they got booked into the Flamingo Hotel as an act, and that's where they developed that act where uh, where they really had this interesting interplay between them. Uh, and she she kind of a little more deadpan and he kind of a little high energy, similar to the Louis Prima-Keely Smith relationship. Now, you talked about how glitz was kind of going by the wayside in the general culture, but Vegas doubles down on it and they start bringing Paris-style glitz. Starting in the late 50s, another important aspect of Vegas entertainment were the big production shows. And they were these French-style shows that they generally brought in from Paris. The Folie Bergère, the Lido de Paris, and the Casino de Paris were the three big ones that ran year after year. And they were big, big productions full of showgirls in, in costumes and headdresses and big production numbers and a kind of precursor to Cirque du Soleil. They were not... Uh, nearly as technically uh, proficient. But, you know, they would recreate the sinking of the Titanic or the Hindenburg disaster. It was They would do amazing things on stage. So these glitzy, high-voltage sort of and, and just visually dazzling production shows, those were a major part of the Vegas scene starting in the late 50s. They were also, starting in the late 50s, the only place in America where you could see bare breasts, female breasts on stage because outside of a burlesque house. So that was very adventurous for Vegas in the late 50s and through the 60s. It was another aspect that drew people to Vegas. Vegas was kind of considered racy entertainment and you could see more skin. You could see more of the girls on, on the Vegas stage. So all that was part of the Vegas scene in the, in the 60s too. As Elvis is contemplating coming on stage at the new International Hotel in Las Vegas, Colonel Tom Parker wants an old production show, yeah. and Elvis wants something else. Yeah. The end of 68, and Elvis finally, after doing no live performing through the 60s, per the colonel's orders, <laughs> after he came back from the Army, the colonel said, you, you're just going to do movies and recording, no, no concerts. He did a couple of benefit concerts in 61, but that was it for the whole 60s. Elvis was getting bored. The movies were getting worse. And finally, late 68, the comeback special on NBC, which was such a big hit, both in the ratings and with the critics, that brought Elvis back, made people realize Elvis was still a powerful stage performer, still had it. And that's when the colonel decided it was time to come back to live performing. He made the deal with the International Hotel. The International Hotel was just being built by Kirk Kikorian for a little background. They made a deal, and it was not too hard to make the deal. Colonel Parker had one stipulation. The hotel wanted Elvis to open the hotel in July 1969, but the colonel was afraid that the hotel was still being finished and they were racing to finish it. There still might be some technical problems with the sound or something. He said, let somebody else be the guinea pig. We'll come in second. And so 
the hotel went out and hired their backup choice, who was Barbara Streisand, to open the hotel. And she didn't get great reviews and either. She didn't. She didn't quite do a a Vegas show. She kind of did a a version of her New York cabaret show, a very quiet sort of show, not a big production. She sat on a stool and sang. She had an orchestra behind her, of course, but she didn't do much with the show, and she didn't even talk much to the audience. And when she did, it was kind of sarcastic stuff about the unfinished hotel. And Vegas critics didn't take much to her. So she got very mixed reviews and didn't fill up the showroom for the you know, like on the weeknights. So it was a, you know, a very mixed reception for Barbara. Elvis was going to do a show that really filled up that stage. And the Colonel's idea, he was, yeah, an old-fashioned showbiz guy, and he'd been to Vegas a lot. And he said, we're going to have showgirls around you and think of the jailhouse rock scene with the dancing jailbirds, something like that. Elvis had a dream one night, and he saw himself on stage in Vegas surrounded by more musicians than ever before. He had a rhythm band behind him. He had two backup singing groups, male and female, and a full Vegas orchestra. And that's what he saw himself on stage in Vegas as. He told the colonel about his vision the next morning, and the colonel said, well, I've got something else in mind. We're already making plans for something else. And Elvis said, no, I'm going to do it my way or I'm not going to do the show. And he told friends that that was the first time he ever hung up on the colonel. So he wanted to do really a, just a, a big rock concert. And he wanted to just fill that stage with musicians. So we went out and got a backup band, hired them one by one. You know, he had to create a new band. He, had to, uh, he hadn't performed live for so long. He hired James Burton first, lead guitarist. And with James's help, he selected the the rest of the band Jerry Chef the bassist Ronnie Tut the drummer who came from Dallas and who was not really well known in in LA circles and, and then he went and he got two backup singing groups he had a male group he wanted the Jordanaires who were the group that had worked with him so much during the 50s and 60s but they were busy you know recording in Nashville so he picked the gospel group, the Imperials, who had worked with him on his 67 album, How Great Their Art. And then for his female group, he wanted a soul sound, and he picked the uh, Sweet Inspirations, who had worked a lot with Aretha Franklin. Whitney Houston's mother, Sissy Houston, was uh, the lead singer at that time. Then the full International's House Orchestra, led by Bobby Morris, who had been a drummer with Louis Prima. And he added strings to the group. There was more than 40 pieces. So it was about 60 musicians on stage, which if it wasn't a record for Vegas, it was close. So um, that was the um, musical group that, that Elvis put together. And what was interesting to me is that he, he did it all pretty much on his own. I mean, he, he put together the show. There was no director or real producer or even some, you know, music industry guru who to kind of tell him how to do the set or give him advice. He just like a David Foster or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. He just did it with his friends, Charlie Hodge and, and with the band members. I mean they they just rehearsed lots of songs and Elvis made his picks of what he wanted to do. And so, you know, he put that show together himself. Now, RCA Records recently released an 11-disc box set called Elvis Live 1969. Yeah. And you can hear that either the first or second night. I mean, hard charging through the music numbers, but his stage patter, he is genuinely nervous. Yeah, you can hear it in all the shows. He never quite got comfortable talking on stage. He, he was very self-conscious. You know, he did a, like a whole autobiographical riff. 10 minutes or so on his his sort of life history. He just went through his start in Memphis, his time in the Army, the movies, etc. 
And there was a, a lot of asides and clearing of his throat and take, drinking water and making jokes about it. And uh, I just felt, you know, he was never very comfortable. He was much more comfortable singing than he was talking. But to me, I thought that was part of the appeal of Elvis in 69 because he was not a slick Vegas performer. He was not with this sort of programmed patter and jokes. His jokes weren't very good. But he was real. He was authentic. And, and he was, I think, just as, as nervous being on stage as the audience was getting to see him for the, for the first time in so many years. It was quite a performance. And even though you listen to the patter and it's a little awkward, I think that's part of the charm of those shows. Yeah, as a person who's a student of comedy and a chronicler of it, it must have been kind of painful through some of those jokes. Yeah, he had, had some jokes. And you hear him do when you can hear multiple concerts and you hear the same jokes his favorite one, and it was fine. He said, this is my first time appearing live in nine years. He says, appeared dead a few times. And, you know, you can hear him do the same joke every night. And it got a little laugh, and it was fine. But some of the others were not so great. But <laughs> Getting Kikorian and uh, Howard Kikor- Hughes into a craps match. Yeah, and- a crap game. with You know, it was, it was pretty standard. You kind of get the feeling he didn't have a comedy writer. He, just, he and his gang just came up with those. <laughs> but that's okay. I give Elvis uh, credit for writing his own material. What did the fans say and what did the critics say after those first few shows? Almost all the rock critics in the country were there on that first night. A lot of them were flown in on Kirk Kikorian's private jet from New York. So there was the New York Times critic and the New Yorker's critic and Rolling Stone, as well as the Billboard and Variety and Hollywood Reporter. Amazingly, almost all the critics were raves. There were one or two dissenters, and they were mostly the Vegas critics who didn't, still didn't like rock and roll. But all the rock critics who counted loved the show. Elvis was back. Elvis could still rock. He did all his early numbers, and he introduced numbers, as you know, in that show. A Suspicious Minds was the big song, seven-minute version that you know blew everyone away. No one had heard it before. He had recorded it the previous January in Memphis, but they didn't release it until during the Vegas show, and it became his first number one hit in seven years. So the fans, everybody who saw it, and I talked to, you know, everybody I could find in the business, including some fans who just were there, and it it was just an amazing experience, you know. Elvis, the energy level was so high, the excitement in the room, and musically, he he was great. When you listen to the recordings, you hear how He's almost out of breath after, you know, just a couple of songs. He, he's huffing and puffing because he's so high energy. He's moving around so much, karate kicks and just jumping around, and he, he's out of breath. But it never affected the voice. I mean, the voice was just, oh, they're so powerful and able to, you know, do everything, you know, from the, the rock songs to the big sentimental ballads. And, you know, it was a beautiful voice, and I don't think he was ever better as a as a stage performer than, than in those first 69 shows. Because you said that he was at fight and weight. He was 165 pounds. He had not gained all the weight at yeah, that point. Yeah, he, he got himself into fighting trim. He looked great. Everybody commented on how, how good he looked. He was dyeing his hair black then. Somebody asked him at a press conference, do you dye your hair? And he said, yes. Someone said, why? He says, because it's gray. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the, you know, just the honesty. But he looked great. He, he was full of energy and just the excitement, his obvious excitement at finally being back in front of his fans again after all those years when he wasn't performing. It just all came out on stage. It was a great, great performance. It's amazing how they kind of thought of him as old hat and passe and he was all of, what, 35 years old or something? 34, 34. yeah. 34. 
And, you know, that's another point to make, that everybody thought he was over the hill because no one at that time, rock and roll was still fairly young, had any idea what a rock and roller would do after age 30. Most of the rock and rollers were were young, and, and they moved into other things. You know, Bobby Darin, you know, people like that became Sinatra-style singers. There was just an assumption that rock and roll was teenage music and that you had a short career as a rock and roll singer. So there was no precedent, there was no model for what a rock and roll singer did at age 34. Elvis set the model. You could still do rock and roll, but you could mature as an artist and you could do a variety of things and you could appeal to more than just the kids. He was appealing to, you know, the middle-aged people or 30-ish people who, you know, screamed for him when they were kids. He was singing, you know, old sort of standards. He was singing big ballads. He was covering songs. He was covering Beatles songs. So he was doing everything, and I thought that was the great thing about the Vegas shows. He was breaking out of the old, what, what he used to do, and really establishing a new identity for himself as a mature and more versatile singer who could sing to everybody. And we talked earlier about Las Vegas reinventing itself at least once and now twice at this point. Can you talk about a couple of the other incarnations it's had since then? Elvis did a new kind of Vegas show. It wasn't an intimate Rat Pack-style nightclub show. He did it in a showroom that was twice as large as any other in Vegas at the time, 2,000 seats. And it was really a big rock concert extravaganza, something Vegas had not seen before. There had been rock performers, rhythm and blues people had played in the lounges, but on a big stage, this was kind of a first for Vegas. Now, it didn't exactly bring in an influx of rock and rollers to Las Vegas because the hip rock groups still stayed away. You were not going to get the Rolling Stones and Janis Joplin into Las Vegas. But it did open the door to a new kind of Vegas show, bigger, more elaborate. It showed that rock and roll could certainly work on the big Vegas stage. And it brought a different kind of audience to Vegas. The people who came, and Elvis, by the way, played four weeks, seven nights a week, two shows a night, not a single night off. So it was 28 days and sold out every show. So it was the biggest, most successful show in Vegas history. $15 a ticket. Uh, Yeah. At the time, was top of the scale. The people came from all over the country, and they were not necessarily Vegas people. A lot of them were coming to Vegas for the first time. They were not necessarily big gamblers, the high rollers that Vegas depended on. They They were just Elvis fans. They were more middle America, more family. And that was the audience that Vegas was kind of moving toward. It would take a couple of more decades. Vegas hit a a kind of slump in the 70s when it became not cool. Elvis was the one star who could still draw him in through the 70s. But a lot of the other stars, the, the Rat Pack, you know, Sinatra and the Rat Pack guys were getting older and fading. The big stars were not coming. There were a few, you know, Tom Jones, Engelbert Humperdinck. But generally, Vegas, the kind of, The glow was off Vegas in the 70s. And it took into the late 80s. Finally, Vegas was really scrambling around. And it took Steve Wynn in 1989 to build the Mirage Hotel. And that was the beginning of the the new reinvention of Las Vegas as a theme park kind of family destination. The theme park hotels, the Mirage, followed quickly by the, the Luxor, the Excalibur, and all sorts of all these, you know, the Venetian. So hotels that were theme parks... And, of course, the Cirque du Soleil extravaganzas, which a new kind of production show for Las Vegas, following also Siegfried and Roy, who were a big 
thing. But these were not headliner shows. These were production shows. So it was not so much the stars that were coming to Vegas anymore. It was the big, you know, very exciting, ex extravagant production shows with, that Cirque du Soleil was doing. And so Vegas was suddenly a different kind of place. Now, the newest reinvention began really in the early 2000s when Celine Dion came in and did a residency at Caesar's Palace. That was a kind of Elvis show, I would say. She even credits Elvis as being the model for her show, although hers was much more high-tech, of course, a lot of visual pyrotechnics. But her show, which was, a, of course, huge success, and then she opened the door to others like Elton John, you know, all sorts of people are doing residencies, Jennifer Lopez, Britney Spears, Lady Gaga, and even more, uh, some of the rock groups are, are coming in. Well, now you have the electronic dance music culture with the high-priced DJs coming yes, to town. Yes, well, that, that has taken over Las Vegas, too. But in terms of headliners, after a period where the headliners were really in eclipse during the, the Cirque du Soleil years, now you're seeing a return of the headliners, many of them rock acts, some a little over-the-hill rock groups, but still a lot of rock music now in Las Vegas. And, um, a lot of and, country, too. And country, oh, yes, absolutely. And Elvis is credited with that because after Elvis in the 70s, suddenly you started seeing people like Willie Nelson and Kenny Rogers and Barbara Mandrell doing the strip, big showrooms in the strip. The country music before had kind of been confined to downtown hotels, but they were then playing the, the big strip hotels. And... Because Elvis, you know, had a lot of country in his, his act, too. And I, I think I've heard people in Vegas credit Elvis with opening almost, you know, more than rock and roll, opening it to country. And now Vegas is just filled with country music just all over the place. So definitely. So in the acknowledgments you talk about as a, a youngster that your parents went to Las Vegas, what was that first trip to Vegas like for you? Yeah, I don't think I could have done the book if I didn't have that one memory of Vegas's golden age. You know, I was a teenage kid in, in the mid-60s. My family was from Kansas City. Four kids and two parents drove in the station wagon to California. It's, Were you in the way back? No, I think I was in the middle seat. <laughs> but that's a kind of tradition. You know, you take your California trip. You go to see Disneyland and L.A. and everything. But we stopped in Las Vegas on the way after the Grand Canyon and stayed two nights. We went to see Johnny Carson. It was one of his first Vegas engagements. And the Kingston Trio, who was my sister's favorite group. So we went to see two shows. And just seeing those hotels, the lights, the casinos that we couldn't get into, it was so glamorous and exciting. And it, it just fixed in my memory. Although, you know, for the book, I had to depend on people's recollections of that era. At least I had my own firsthand recollection, at least of a little piece of it. So, yeah, that memory stuck with me, and I think that was one reason I, I did the book. And you got to meet Carson? I did, yeah. We went backstage. My parents had friends out there at the same time, and he was kind of a, thought of himself as a big shot. He could get us in backstage, and he did, sure enough. Went backstage. Johnny Carson signed my Sahara Hotel postcard or something, and I still have it somewhere at home. He was very nice, Johnny. There was somebody waiting for him, and he said, hold on, I have to do this, and he signed an autograph to me. So that's my one memory, my one tangible memory of Las Vegas in the 60s. Yeah, if it weren't for Johnny Carson and me staying up late on a Friday night, I wouldn't know half the people who were in the book. That's right, that's right. Well, Johnny was a big, uh, interesting star for Vegas in those years because he was only you know, a couple years into The Tonight Show, 
And he, he was not a nightclub performer. He'd never done nightclubs. And when they booked him into the Sahara Hotel, there were a lot of people who thought Johnny wouldn't do well in Las Vegas. I mean, what is this, a TV star doing doing Las Vegas? But he came in and he broke all the Sahara Hotel records. So it showed that TV stars could be Vegas stars as well, as long as they could get up on a stage and tell jokes. Yeah, that was a big big show for Las Vegas, and he came back every every summer through the 60s and well into the 70s. Well, what's up next for Richard Zoglin? What are you, you going to look at oh, next? Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm mulling things, but I haven't got a, an idea yet. It's hard to come up with ideas. I feel like each of my books has been a kind of unique, taking something, you know, an area of popular culture that I feel has been undercovered, underreported. The stand-up comedians of the 70s. Bob Hope had not had a major biography done on him, and I think he's a hugely important entertainer. And Las Vegas's entertainment years. And I thought this was needed to be done, not just because Vegas needed a good history, but because Elvis needed to be put in the context of Las Vegas. People have written about his Vegas comeback a lot, but only in the sense of what it meant for Elvis. I wanted to show what it meant for Vegas, too. He didn't just reinvent himself. He helped reinvent Las Vegas. So anyway, that's what I feel my contribution has been in this book. Hmm, trying to find another subject where I can make an equal contribution <laughs> is a little difficult, but I'll come up with something. I'm sure you're glad to know that we're not caught in a trap, so yeah. we can both walk out. <laughs> Richard, I want to thank you so much for coming by today. It's been a genuine pleasure. Yeah, thanks. A lot of fun for me, too. Richard Zoglin is the author of Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show, which is published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.